Welcome to the Wrath of the Oceans podcast, where two Gen X friends will discuss fantasy, horror, and science fiction books and topics. This is episode 44. We welcome Sarah Tolmy, author of All the Horses of Iceland. Sarah Tolmy can be described in many ways. Intelligent, she's a trained medievalist with advanced degrees from the University of Toronto and Cambridge, and is a professor at the University of Waterloo. Versatile, Sarah's a published poet, author of novels and novellas. Unique, her body of work is not easily classified. Said legendary Ursula Le Guin of the Stone Bowman, published by Aqueduct Press in 2014, certain imaginative novels never best sell, yet remain alive. A singular treasure to each new generation that finds them. No Food is a novella set in the near future, where a fashionable procedure for the wealthy called the total gastric bypass has effects on the individuals and society and as a reader, what it means to be human. Published in 2014, No Food is even more relevant for the social media saturated world we now live in, and just as profound as the TV show Severance. Hey Apple TV Plus executives, are you listening? The Art of Dying, Sarah's second collection of poems, confronts the fear of death head-on. Describing the rituals that mitigate it, the poems in The Art of Dying take a satirical look at the ways we explain, enshrine, and above all, evade death in contemporary culture. Another characteristic that describes Sarah is resilient. As a mom to a new baby and toddler and a professor working diligently for tenure, Sarah wrote a novel The Stone Bowman while riding on a bus during a long commute to and from work. Inspiring, The Stone Bowman was passed over by publishers for close to two years. During this interview, Sarah shared with Jake and I the amazing story of how she got published. And all aspiring writers should listen to Sarah tell her story. I don't think it's a coincidence that these are the same characteristics that describe Icelandic horses. So enjoy our discussion with Sarah about all the horses of Iceland. We spoke to Sarah at her home in Kitchener, Ontario, in Canada. became aware of Icelandic horses through a friend of mine who travels to Iceland with her family on a regular basis. Her daughter got involved in a program where she can take care of Icelandic horses and she sent some photos over to me and I became quite fascinated with them as well. So I was doing some research and that's when I found the article in the New York Times for all the horses of Iceland. And as soon as I read it, I just said to myself, I have to read this book. I absolutely loved reading all the horses of Iceland and found myself reading it out loud. I could not quite articulate why I liked it so much. So I immediately contacted Jake to hear his thoughts. I have to say, so we tend to review genre fiction. Yeah. And I adore most of it. We can't often say that it's scintillating prose. Really, (laughs) we focus on plot. We focus on character, cultural significance. But seldom do we have the opportunity to acknowledge really great writing. Now we have that opportunity because I think that this is extraordinarily well-written, really a cut above what we've seen or reviewed in many cases, I won't say. And in every case, there isn't great, there's always great prose that serves the purpose of the plot mostly. But this is just lovely. And as Ron said, I found myself reading it out loud. I I adore it. And it's also brimming with good humor, which, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And it was such a pick-me-up to read this after the events of the last few weeks. It made me happy. And as much as I love what we've been reading, I don't often finish a book with a smile on my face. So I just want to thank you for this book. I think it's wonderful. It's an extraordinary book. It deserves a great deal of attention. Oh, thank you very much. I am extremely glad that the humor comes through. It's not a knee slapper, is it? But no, it's just this consistent level of this. Consistent, <laughs> low-key yep. level of irony. The Greek term for that is lightotes. And there is actually a, a Norse term for it, and I completely forget what it is. But it is totally characteristic of sagas. 
which again, we don't think of as high humor pieces, do we? Mm. But actually, there is this kind of sly understatement in which they describe somebody getting horribly mutilated and their head cut off or whatever. And then they'll say, and for that, he died. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's that, that wonderful understatement. And I feel that I really made Avon so that he participated in that kind of way of speaking and way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. He's pretty hysterical, frankly. Ironic distance. So that's really glad. I, I'm really glad that comes through. And I, it is true that I do feel that the prose quality is very important to this whole thing. It's completely constitutive sort of of its saga-like quality. I guess it's mm-hmm. no saga. Again, I've read all the sagas only in English. I don't actually read Old Norse. My husband does. So I was always going to him with the style queries. As certainly as they manifest in English, they do have, again, a terseness, a directness. They have a sort of modern poetic quality that you have to admire. And they're very good at deciding what to say and what to leave out. This is a a, a characteristic of just like concision that they have. And that is very much where I wanted to be with this. Mm -hmm. So that yes, this is a historical fiction and it is about a mappable journey. And you really can go to the period maps and put your finger along the Volga and see where he went and all that. But Instead of describing it in detail and describing all the different types of grasses that he rides through and doing what we would do if we were writing a modern or a contemporary historical fiction, I decided to do it the Norse way. It's sort of he departs and then four years later, he returns to Iceland. And I mean, of course, <laughs> it, a lot has happened, but they're very action focused, right? They focus on the actions that are important to the persons and to the person's interrelationships with other persons. There are very few like scenic descriptions or anything that gives you much background. You really always have to suss it from human behavior. Yeah, it's very precisely composed. And I mean that in a good way. It feels very carefully composed and very economical in terms of the language. Thank you. I'm also a poet. So I do, I think, I write prose the way somebody who writes poetry does. It's apparent. Sarah, you've described yourself as a horse person since you were young. What drew you to horses as a child? That's a good question. My childhood was very much a movable feast. My dad was an artist. And as a family, we moved literally, I remember it as about you know every two years kind of thing, steadily. And I started riding because there were some beautiful little ponies who lived in the field behind our house when we lived in the tiny village of Bridgetown in Nova Scotia. So it's in the Annapolis Valley. And we had a big old house with a really cropped out back few acres and a wire fence and then a couple of Shetland ponies belonging to the neighbor behind there. And I would go up to the fence and I would feed them grass and talk to them and whatever. And I just instantly became obsessed with them as animals before even riding them. So I knew them for a time before I actually begged my parents to take me out to the local small riding academy and start lessons and all that. And then for many years subsequent to that, riding horses was very much the kind of bonding experience that I had consistently. Now, admittedly, with different horses and different school horses in different towns and all the rest of it, but they impose a kind of emotional continuity on my life that in many respects I didn't have otherwise. So I think they were very much part of my kind of emotional stability mechanisms as a child, a therapeutic series of relationships. And I think they've always kept that status in my mind, even though as an adult, I have written comparatively little. I did a a little bit in grad school because I had the opportunity then. I've written once or twice in between and I rode the Icelandic courses that time that I went in, what was it, 2017 or 18 to uh, the Icelandic Writers' Conference. 
and had the kind of tourist opportunity to ride some Icelandic horses across black lava fields and all of that sort of thing. Very profoundly moving to see the landscape from that vantage point. And it brought back uh, a lot of those, I don't know, interdependent or a kind of existential feelings that you get from riding horses. You miss it when you don't do it. And then you recall it suddenly when you do. I know that I wouldn't have written the book, but for that two hour trail ride. And then thereafter, I think I've said this before, but I read, or I, no, I was watching a TV documentary actually on Icelandic courses. And the narrator happened to mention this interesting tidbit that they were genetically descended from the horses of the Central Asian steppe, which was a new fact to me. And that single fact, it's usually the way a single little factor observation will suddenly crystallize and give you a story. And I thought, oh, wow, there it is, man. Now we have to, now I have to write a story kind of in the form of a myth that would describe how the horses got from Mongolia to Iceland. And because it's going to end up in Iceland, I'm going to write it in the form of a saga. So all the pieces fell very rapidly into place as soon as I got that one new piece of information. All the horses of Iceland descends from Icelandic saga tradition. Can you tell us more about the attributes of this form of storytelling and why you're drawn to it? It's one of the most remarkable vernacular traditions of writing in the Middle Ages. Iceland is a tiny place and it was composed of cranky settlers, mostly from Norway, but then rapidly from uh, all over the kind of northern rim of Scandinavia, people who just didn't want to live under a king anymore. And there were fairly compelling reasons for internecine warfare, why you might not want to do. So there were various, some noble status people and some farmer status people escaping royal management. And you would not think that this kind of would be a propitious sort of scenario for a lot of record keeping or organized storytelling, but it absolutely was. There's like a millennium of this extremely, it's at once very prosaic and exact who was married to who and who owns what and a genealogical, very Hobbit-like concern with those kinds of relations. But also a very interesting and speculative and rich kind of tradition that they you know, brought with them from Scandinavia of thinking about the God and a whole language and a whole set of complicated metaphors used for that purpose. And also an enormous body of law, which is, again, another thing that's really noticeable in sagas of all kinds is their just obsessive, persnickety legalism. <laughs> and one of the things that was comical and is really true in, in certain there are particular sagas that are like this, Njal's saga is a bit like this, Erbiga's saga is like this. And Erbiga's saga is probably the one I took the most from in terms of the building blocks of this story because it's actually about that region in Western Iceland that Avon comes from. And it's full of ghosts who trespass and want to get your stuff, right? They want to get your food, chiefly, because food is always in short supply. They want to sit by your fire and get warm. And the only thing that will displace them is the threat of the law. So you actually end up conducting what were called door courts, and evicting the ghosts on charges of trespass. And they will march sullenly past you, all slumped and grouchy, saying, we had it good for a while, and now we have to go. And, then, and off they go, and they won't come back. Because even in death, 
they will obey the law. It's that kind of thing that the sagas are so rich and unexpected in. They're really not at all the sort of like glorious Viking killing tales that they're not like television, right? They're not like television that is made about Norsemen is not at all what the sagas themselves are like, really not. <laughs> so you've, you've touched on this a bit already, but I, I was wondering if you could cite or discuss some of the influences and sources that you cite in your name, sources and poetic forms. At the time that I was beginning to work on this just completely in an unrelated way, I had become obsessed with ghazals, the Arabic the poetic poet. form, yeah. which are just gorgeous. They are, it's just, it's a beautiful form. Of course, I, it's not a form that I can understand in any of the languages in which it was originally composed in Arabic, in Persian and Farsi, but they have been numerously translated. And I was starting to become really interested in the American poet Shahid Ali Khan, whose wonderful book, Call Me Ishmael Tonight, is a collection of English language ghazals. So I was already, I had those in my head. I had written a bunch of them. And then I wrote one that I realized would fit beautifully mm -hmm. into the book. Yeah. And so therefore I had to invent a character for it to belong to. And then I had to bring that character into the proximity of this kind of group of Turkic traders with whom Avon, the hero, the Icelandic hero was already traveling. So that piece was in the mix from fairly early on, but I only realized that I absolutely had to have it in the story once I had begun it. So that meant I had to do much more reading on the Sasanian Empire than I thought I was going to have to do at the beginning. And I really had to shore up my sense of the Asian world in that period. I had a sort of, I am a medievalist, so I did have the very broad outlines in my head. And likewise, I had the broad outlines of that kind of early Norse and Kievan Rus history. But as a, my training really teaches me how to teach Middle English, like Chaucer. You know, the 14th mm -hmm. century is a zone in which most of my expertise is supposed to be brought to bear. I am not really an early medievalist at all. So I did have to do quite a bit of not only reading particular sagas and chunks of sagas, mostly those having to do with ghosts. So again, Erbega saga is a very good one for this. Mial is pretty good. Gretir is also good. So had to chunk my way through those again. And, and then I had to, on the experience of Norse travelers, Norse-speaking travelers in what they called Gartharinki, so like Northern Russia. So I actually did a fair amount of research reading at this sort of article level. And I read quite a bit of scholarship about the Khazar Kaganate, right? So Khazars or Khazars, whichever you prefer. As I am not one myself, I am not certain. It's one of those vowels. <laughs> I always thought it was Khazar, but... It, it can go either way, yeah. Uh, uh, so let's say Khazars. There are Turkic people who ran a very important, complicated, and multicultural Kaganate just slightly to the north and to the west, slightly of central Mongolia, let's say. And there is a long-standing tradition. There's a long, powerful myth that the rulers of Khazaria were Jews. Were Jewish, right. Yeah. So yeah. this is a marvelous story. We think it, as far as I could ascertain, it, show, it begins to show up in certain Arab chroniclers from the north of Spain and very gradually spreads out through the long history of Arab language and Hebrew language writing about Central Asia, but always it's always like a, a very far away, experimental, we've never seen it with our eyes, 
here are a few strange traveler's tales. So it remained always a kind of experiment in remoteness and a way of allowing Jewish kingship to still exist after the diasporas and also to interrupt kind of dominational narratives that make about Muslimizing all that part of the world or Christianizing all that part of the world. So the stories become, they're used and they show up in all of those traditions, in the Jewish tradition and in the Christian tradition. Everybody is repeating the same little like two or three paragraphs, essentially, <laughs> that were originally written by this guy from Northern Spain. And it, it becomes a thing that lasts for 700 years. There isn't, as far as we can tell, any way of proving that it ever was true. There are no documents. There aren't even any physical artifacts. Although there was this one coin, and there is a coin that, that shows up briefly there in the book, uh, uh, which has the name of Moses on that coin. <laughs> so that, that's the one physical artifact that actually had Hebrew lettering on it. And people have been wondering what on earth was a, a, a Durham doing with Arabic lettering and there with Jewish lettering. So there are many speculations about this. Anyway, I like I that you said you treat it as a wonder tale. I do treat it as a wonder tale because I do think that actually is what it is in Mm. its traditional origin. And as the book itself, All the Horses of Iceland is de facto a wonder tale. Wonder tale, right. It is. And there are wonder tale elements in many Icelandic sagas. And they're, again, in the way that's so wonderful about sagas, they're, they're just seamlessly blended in. There's no big fanfare and nobody's wand waving and there are no big... (laughs) It is not magic of the kind of theatrical kind. It is of the very practical, low-key, we're actually just trying to manage the situation kind. And ghosts are dealt with in that way. Magic is dealt with in that way. You're answering all my questions. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I had one. So the narrative is related in the person of Yoer, who's three centuries removed from the subject. He intrudes infrequently into the story. Was this framing device, was this common in the sagas? Or was this something that you added? It is common um, in the sagas. You do necessarily see it because most of those texts have traveled uh, a certain distance in the manuscript tradition before we read them, obviously. They're telling tales, mythological tales, and tales even about the history of the settlement of Iceland let's say from the perspective of two to three centuries later, typically. We know that there must have been fragmentary records before, but they are through written and collected, usually in a monastic context. Again, this is one of those things that people who work on the early Middle Ages are always having to contend with, which is that all of the information about pagan Europe that we glean from these texts that talk about the setting up of all the early European states and all the rest of it, they're all written by monks several generations late, some biases and some criticisms put in. Now, what's interesting about the sagas is that, at least most of them, there are many different kinds, of course, of of saga. There are family sagas and there are history sagas and there are more mythological ones and more wonder tale ones and all the rest of it. There aren't too many like super intrusive narrators. They're fairly low key, but they do indicate from time to time the kind of temporal difference. Like there is a long ago-ness, a far away-ness that is from time to time touched on, even as they try to make burning to death in his cottage very vivid and in the moment. So they're there, but they're not super elaborate. I have the occasional intrusions a lot, actually, where he describes how he got lost in Norway's Updal Valley and Thorlax saw him through. I think those passages actually are terrific, too. I really enjoy the intrusions. That's good, because again, I did wonder that scene with him and Thorlach, him saying, Thorlach, please save your fellow Icelanders. He's like 
sees the horror of the trees, which he's never <laughs> seen. That scene was quite a late addition because mm-hmm. I felt that maybe the footprint, the narrative footprint of your was a little light and that where exactly were all these words coming from in the end? And if we're going to make such a big deal about this document that is slowly put together from the sort of initial Mongolian language fragment that is written during his lifetime and he gets glossed in Greek and then glossed in Latin and all the rest of it. We, we do need some sort of final resting place for that document to come. And it's got to have some sort of collator reader person. Mm-hmm. So you're grew in the making of the text, I think. As I read all the horses of Iceland, I found myself trying to sketch out the journey. I see why you didn't include a map, but that being said, could you illustrate to us in very broad strokes a mental map of Avon's journey? He goes first, basically, from Iceland down and and then to mainland Scandinavia, and then kind of port hops along the top of Scandinavia, as indeed you do if you're in a small ship, and then basically gets himself over to what we now think of as the top of Russia, (laughs) broadly speaking, and begins to to go down what we think of as the Volga, which is an enormous river and was one of the main lifelines of trade from the North European world down into the Arab and Greek worlds. And the way that I indicate the journey is less by talking about the sites that he sees and the plants and the local fauna and the whatever, and more about what happens to the language that he is speaking as he goes along. And one of the things I really did want to make clear was that when he leaves Iceland, he speaks only Icelandic, which is... By the time he is living, let's say he's living in about the year 830, that language is still pretty consistent with the language that is spoken in Norway at the time. Norway and then all the other Scandinavian languages evolved away from Icelandic, which kind of to some extent fossilized, right? It is a kind of, it's a language now, if you read modern Icelandic or speak it, you can still actually read old Icelandic quite well. Whereas if you speak Danish or read Danish, you have to learn it as a foreign language, much to a much greater extent. So he spoke this small local Germanic language when he left. And then the further and further away he gets from his home, even though he's still in broadly speaking a kind of Norse sphere of influence, the languages that are being spoken around him, and they indeed even the, the language spoken by the sailors, the experienced sailors that he is with, is starting to change and it's starting to take on Russian vocabulary, Slavic vocabulary, and then later Turkic and Mongolian vocabulary as he goes lower down the river. But by the time he gets to Gartariki, what we would think of what was going to later become Kievan Rus, right? The kind of Norse Slavic nations of that part of the world, they're clearly speaking something that isn't exactly Norse anymore and it isn't Russian either. Right. It's a Creole. Like on any river trading route, any, you know, liminal place, you're going to get these kinds of Creoles. So it's clear as much from what he says about the comprehensibility of people's languages, that's really the indicator of the distance that he's traveled. It's not miles, it's tongues, it's languages. And he goes from language to language, and they are either, as he says, easy to see into or hard. <laughs> you know, so 
you're answering all my questions before I ask them. <laughs> so I observed that language was central to the tale and teasing out the meaning in the known world of this sort of mm-hmm. multitude of tongues and dialects is one of great challenges. So nowhere in the story, to, at least to me, is this concern more evident than in the translation or failure to translate the Uyghur script on the vellum yeah. scroll. It's given to Avind by, I can't, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it, Ho Walun. Is that yeah. even close? You know what? It's actually, yeah, I have been looking this up very carefully recently, and I actually did track down, bless her heart, a Mongolian speaker to check these because I just, we're just making an audiobook of it. So oh, great. Really excellent not to mess up the names. So you're narrating it? I'm not narrating it. No, it's it's been picked up by Tantor and they have their own narrators. Mm-hmm. But there is a certain amount of this vocabulary that we must not blow because that would just be dreadfully insulting. So it's actually closer to Ulan. Ulan. There's a, a, lot, a lot of graphical information there that we think we have to make use of as English speakers, but we don't. So it is, yeah, I'll, I'll like, try to keep it in here for the next I know, five exactly. minutes. <laughs> Yes. So I was going to ask you to address this theme in the story, which you Mm -hmm. have already. But is there any way that it mirrors your own experience of writing the book? Because you're dealing with these challenging original sources and maybe having some of the same experiences. There is a sort of meta commentary perhaps going on in that way. I think, again, what it's easy to forget about the sagas because they are, for one thing, the body of them is quite big. There's a heck of a lot of it and they're all cross-indexed and cross-referenced. So you get an impression of a complete and thorough world. And it's everything, and it seems to be obvious, and and it it feels perhaps not international, but it doesn't feel parochial, but it actually is. Like it's in a tiny little language, tiny. England had its own little bunch of dinky languages at exactly this time, like in eight thirty, right? In Britain, there are two or three major language groups all fighting it out. Nobody has yet clearly emerged the winner. And modern English, the Creole that we all speak, that we think of as English is only in its nascency at this period. And Iceland is even tinier. So they're just these wee little dinky languages. And and then he goes out into this enormous world, not even realizing that there are as many languages as there are spoken and being shocked that every, whatever, every 75 miles, the tongue around him has morphed yet again. And then translating those experiences as one necessarily does back into your home language. Right. Avon doesn't write his own book. He doesn't write it in Icelandic. He comes home, we presume, with a bunch of oral tales in his own language, which somebody records. And we never know who that might be. Perhaps that's probably some, they're interim people. And he comes home with this curious document that is the, st- the, the tale of the ghost of Bort haunting the Khan's camp. And that thing is written in the Mongolian language. And Ulan spoke that language out loud to a guy who wrote in the Uyghur script. So he basically came from the Khazar Khaganate at that time. And he wrote it down phonetically into that mm. script because that's the script that he knew. And then it goes through, we need to get a Mongolian speaker to recover that. So we, we have to have a, a little boy, Ger, who reads the text back to his Greek priest on the boat and gets the, the Greek glosses. And then we get the Greek glosses, glosses into Latin when we get back to Iceland. So there is a, a slow accretion of this document, which would have been utterly incomprehensible to, let us say, poor old Yor, looking at the thing in 1200 and seeing these interesting spiky columns of signs 
that he could never make head nor tail of. He, he couldn't even read the Greek. He could tell it was Greek, <laughs> but somebody had written it in Latin, thank God. And then from there, he could get it into Icelandic. So much possibility for loss or for expansion. So the whole, that artifact is the kernel, in a sense, of the whole saga in the way that necessarily there have to have been artifacts like that behind all of the sagas that we know. It's just that one was extremely multilingual. And I the love thing the that, scenes where they're trying to make heads or tails of they're it. Struggling with it on the, on, Everybody's on, baffled by it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so now I don't know how much you know about the wonderful text called The Secret History of the Mongols. I worked for a publisher. With, this came out a couple of seasons ago. Yeah. Um, so it's been my, as I was reading this, I was like, oh, I should really read this. So I'm learning. Yeah. So in The Secret History, which was written very close to the death date of Genghis Khan, it's astonishingly, it was like breaking news, all the stuff that wonderful book contains. But in it, there is an origin story for what we would now call classical Mongolian script. And it is that, that Genghis actually imported a named Uyghur scribe to write the first Mongolian. So it was, in fact, part of his centralization campaign to actually take control uh, of the transition from a an oral to illiterate culture. Exactly the kind of thing you would have expected of him. Mm-hmm. But I'm antedating my little story. I just bring unknown scribe, getting a hold of the first sample of written Mongolian and performing that, I think, magical action almost three centuries before the reign of Genghis, just because I wanted to have that document and I couldn't figure out what script it would have otherwise gone into. It seemed the most logical one, right? The prevailing one. The other one would have been Chinese, but there are all kinds of problems with that. And I, I wanted to get out earlier than the imperial set of relations that began to, between China and Mongolia. I wanted still to be very early and tribal and to be about that really interesting magical moment where you first write your language down. That sort of leads to the tribal nature of magic mm-hmm. in the book. And so that magic, again, you've touched on this already, but magic is everywhere and nowhere in this novella because it's discussed and practiced in such a matter-of-fact way. You use magic to tease the language out. It's also finicky and it's also tribal. So is there anything you haven't covered relative to the sort of the way magic is employed in the sagas? Any other little tidbits? Yeah. Again, there are so many magic or sether, this practice. Mm -hmm. It runs right through the sagas deep down everywhere. So it was as matter-of-factly treated as being a tenor or being a law speaker or techniques of sheep raising or whatever would be talked about with the same kind of matter of fact gravity that you would talk about. Here is a ceremony for getting rid of a stubborn ghost who's haunting your cow shed. And there were practitioners of Seder, and they are discussed at various different times, and they're not always respected, and they're not necessarily always powerful people in the community. So the image of this, the, the kind of like the Gandalf image of the wizard kind of thing as towering and important and masculine and all the rest of it, not always the case, actually. I think it's an Arabic as Anyway, there's a, a famous description of a, a little mumbling mad old lady with cat skin gloves. And she is the regional practitioner of Seven. And you get her to come in and wave her gloves around and, and mumble stuff that you yourself barely understand at crisis points when nobody else seems to be able to prevail over this crisis. So you don't like magic isn't necessarily the first 
port of call. Mm. It's what you have to resort to you know, when you can't do it legally or by fighting or by you know, canny intermarriage, or even just by leaving the farm, or all practical things have been exhausted, you must now consider this option. And the practitioners of Sether are often these kinds of marginal characters, often women, foreigners, people with various different kinds of mental or physical disabilities. So they are liminal, and they are important, and they are tolerated in their differentness for this capacity that they have. And they come in, they do whatever work it is that they do, and then it works. Right. Magic in a community works when people believe it will work. It is like faith healing, like all other social practices. So Seth is and is not always present and available. And it is something that you accept and that you call on, but you also want to be able to exile it again. This is the case in most societies I have ever read about. We People nowadays often think that priests in all and shamans in all the cultures that rely upon them are always revered and treated as central and given gifts and extremely important and possibly royal and all the rest of it. And in fact, quite often, none of that is true. Is that what you mean when you say the word shaman is used irresponsibly or? Yeah, I certainly just, I find it is used in in a rather airy-fairy way a Uh lot of days in the sense that there are many people who claim to be practicing shamans of one kind or another. And this is bunk. You can only be a shaman in a culture that believes in shamans, right? You have to be part of the world in which that obtains. Otherwise, it is just flummery, right? So it, it is annoying that people feel that there is some sort of really low threshold or no threshold that they have to meet in order to call themselves a contemporary shaman. Whereas there's rather a different set of criteria and different thresholds you have to meet if you use the word priest, right? No, they are, are they right? same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're going to do one or you're going to, I think this is just one of those areas where that word often covers a multitude of sins of just deracination and just silliness. So I, that's why I don't use the word in the text. I don't use the word Viking either because A, Avent isn't a Viking. He's a traitor. There are no acts of Viking at all in this book. I'm not really that interested in Viking. It was Definitely a very real thing, and it really was a practice, and there would be no wealth in the very far north of the world, as the Scandinavians ran it, if there weren't Viking. (laughs) But that's not what this is. This is trading. Completely different enterprise and requiring a completely different way of looking at a world, a much more interactionist model, in which in order to get wealth out of people, which is absolutely and only what Avend is interested in, (laughs) he has to talk to them, and he has to figure out what bargains he can make with them that will redound to their mutual advantage. And that's what he's about from first to last, whether he's doing it by magic or just by talking or by paying or by working or whatever. Very practical minded and about about trade. But because of that, because of the centrality of talking to trade, language is very important in the book from first to last. So you've written in a variety of forms, poetry, short fiction, novellas, and novels at this point. Is there a particular mode that you prefer or find more or less challenging than the others? That's a very good question. I've always been a poet and I started writing poetry as a child and continued right on through high school. And at least my first degree at university was very much part of my vision of myself. And insofar as I thought of myself as a writer, I thought of myself as a poet. But then grad school killed that off. (laughs) I just killed that stone dead. And I didn't do a damn thing in that line for nearly a day. What about that? This is not uncommon, of course. Grad school 
utterly distracting in and of itself that it quite frequently crushes any other Your spirit form really of writing <laughs> I, that, that you're, you've got going and it took, it took me a good five or six years of my new life as a professor that actually had to sink in for five or six years and I had to calm down such that I could begin to write again. And I didn't start writing poetry again, which surprised nobody more than myself. Indeed, I had never succeeded in writing consecutive prose before. I literally could not have written more than four or five pages consecutively. It just never gelled and held together when I was a younger person. But so this may be a moment where actually my academic training in writing consecutive prose did me some good as a writer. I started writing what was going to become the quite long novel, The Stone Boatman, which was my first kind of publication in recent times. And that started off as a single little moody paragraph (laughs) that came from a dream. And then it gradually grew into something that was approximately the length of a novella. And I thought, oh, that's the end of that story. And then I realized, no, it wasn't. And then it became another novella length thing. And finally, there were four of these things from four different perspectives all set in the same world. And after much endless agony, (laughs) it it finally (laughs) did become a a, a through written consecutive book. And so that book and then the the book that I published in 2019 called The Little Animals, which is a, a sort of you, you really at the heart of it, it is a very straight up, you know, kind of psychohistory of Anthony Lewahoop, who was one of the first people to use the single lens microscope in Holland in the 17th century. So it's very much about his little world in Delft and the day to day goings on of his life and his struggles to become respected in the academy and yada. But it also has a, a kind of strong magical realist element in that there he runs up against a character who's very much based on the goose girl from the Brothers Grimm. Mm-hmm. So she's a sort of feral intelligence and she has a different perspective, observation and vision and various things. So she's there to problematize the idea of natural history and the beginnings of science and yeah, yeah. So that book took me forever to write and The Stone Boatman also did. And they're the only two times I've tried to write at that full novel length, the sort of 350 to 400 page length. and. They were both kind of serious trials. The, certainly the little animals, perhaps more than any of them, because it was much more research heavy than anything else I had written before. Mm-hmm. The Stone Boatman came out actually quite seamlessly because I, fortunately at the time, I did not conceive of it as a novel. Indeed, I did not really conceive of it as anything other than this thing that I was writing at the time on the bus, back and forth on my commute from work. And that meant that it was painless. And I only I understood it retroactively as a novel once I had got through this story. But now I look at it and it's clear to me that it's really a collection of four novellas. And length. it's taken me a good 15 years to understand this about myself. I think that the novella as a prose length is my natural length. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that this sort of 150 pages to maybe 175 is a very natural my thought seems to settle nicely into that length and trying to force it out into something as big as a full length novel like The Little Animals is a serious ordeal <laughs> for me. And I'm not sure that it's the best use of my craft. And then as a poet, I just, I was almost accidentally reinvented as a poet because there was a poet character in The Stone Boatman and I got to write a bunch of her poems and put them in an appendix. And it was almost that single fact that kind of allowed me to be reborn as a 
poet writing my own voice subsequent to that. And then it, since then, I have written poetry pretty consistently in the midst of my, my novelistic writing. My next one is The Stone Boatman, I think, because if, if Ursula Gwynn, if it's good enough for her, she saved my childhood. So that's definitely on my list. And, and after you know, reading all the horses, I'm ready to move on to the next one. Yeah, that is a book that never would have been published, but for Ursula, actually. I had written that long thing and I did, I'd been working on it for, a, I just through wrote it in about maybe two years, I would say. My children were babies and toddlers at the time. I was trying to get tenure and I was living almost a two-hour commute from my work. So I had very little time, shall we say. And the only time I ever had to myself was that, the bus trip twice a day. So I had my hour and a half or so of undisturbed writing time on a crowded bus. And I wrote the whole book that way. And then tidied it up, through wrote it, rationalized it, understood it as a novel, tried desperately to market it to every living soul for 18 months, maybe two years, finally gave up in despair and realized that, in fact, at the end of the day, the only mind on the planet Earth that I really wanted to read that book was Ursula Le Guin. And I really didn't give a shit whether anybody else ever read it at all. And so I sent it to her post office box saying, dear, like a fangirl letter saying, I'm very sorry to just lay this on you, you know, but in fact, you are the one consciousness, I think, on the earth who would probably get this, might even like it. And if you read it, as far as I'm concerned, it will be a success. And she did like, and she wrote back to me, I got an email from Ursula K. Le Guin, you know, saying, Dear Sarah, I read I read your book. And it was like in this horrible, like Sherlock's bound, heavy manuscript. She said it nearly crushed her to death as she was trying to read it on the beach with her family. And she put me on to Aqueduct Press because Timmy Duchamp at, at Aqueduct Press had published a number of her, like her how-to books and her interviews and whatever. So she already had a relationship with her. So she gave the book to Timmy and Timmy liked it. And she got back to me. And it's the only reason that ship ever sailed <laughs> is, is just the sheer human decency of Ursula Le Guin. Saving my flaming bacon. <laughs> <laughs> so wonderful it was a story. And I don't know why, but I'm a little teary. I know. Well, I trust oh, yeah. it's I, I, amazing. I was teary about it myself for years. I, mean, I still have emails all saved, as you can imagine. I thought I'd have the whole goddamn internet. That's great. Brought. Frame them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Frame them. Yeah, I have the envelope that she sent me the manuscript back in, framed on my wall. Great. You know, it was an absolutely revolutionized moment for me. And certainly a moment where you think, wow, the people who actually are, she too, saved my childhood kind of thing. She was an absolute touchstone all the way through my, my whole youth. Absolutely. And indeed, I still reread her books on like more or less constant loop. But to hear from her at all was astonishing. And to get this kind of incredibly decent, practical help. It really did make you think, wow, the people at the absolute top of their game sometimes uh -huh. are in fact charitable. It really speaks to her character. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And she, yeah, I still look upon it as the thing that simply turned the whole prose writing game around for me. I had been doing it in isolation for a long time, pretty well. Yeah, really like with no help and not getting very far with it, even though I felt fairly confident that the product itself was interesting. I just couldn't figure out how to market it or package it indeed in any way. And indeed, I never really have succeeded at being very good at that. I even had a fancy New York agent for a while and she tried to sell the little animals 
for me in all the high powered ways. And it just didn't fly because I think generically it is unusual. It just does not fit very clearly into really any of the genre boxes that the market is presently composed mm-hmm. of. And I feel this is my fate. I'm a little more calm about it in a way, or I've got a more of a Zen perspective on it because I think novellas, now that I understand that is where my forte is, I can make a go of those. Tor has bought the last two of them. Uh-huh. I have very good relations with my editor. I feel very confident that if I'm writing at that length, they will take it happily off my hands. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I won't be out there doing these ghastly, like kind of cement pounding two-year extravaganzas trying to, to get longer books published. Yeah, they're very disheartening, as every writer will tell you. So yeah, but uh, yes, Ursula, she did it. She just cut through that Gordian knot completely. <laughs> and it remained cut, if you know what I mean, because I formed a good relationship with Timmy at Aqueducts and weird, challenging books, too long, too short, whatever. She'll publish them for me. Bless her, because that's her purview with her her determinedly artsy, kind of no-holds-barred, small-press way of looking at the world. It is really true that a tremendous amount of awesome stuff isn't exactly is coming out in those smaller press venues. Mm-hmm. The really kick-ass kind of genre-busting stuff. But it's very hard to get yourself out of that world and into the world of some sort of larger commercial enterprise. Mm-hmm. It's strangely, these boxes are still very long. Sarah, can you read some passages from All the Horse of Iceland for the listening audience? You know what? I'm not going to blather on about the context too much because I find oh, yeah, too no much worries. is just dull. Oh. I'm simply going to read a section. As it happens, it begins on page 35 of the text, and it is a moment in which Avend first meets the ghost of Bort and really becomes committed, therefore, to her problem and enters into a kind of important trading relationship with the Khan to whom she is married. Many things then became clear to Avent. For a man so wealthy and revered, the Khan looked tired and dismal. Misfortune hung around his camp. In the time they had been there, few other traders had come. David had remarked that goods were fewer and men angrier than they had been when he had traded here before. Nobody prospers with a ghost around. It came into Avon's mind that he should tell David and his fellows of this. Jews, like everyone else, must surely be troubled by ghosts. Then they could all move on to another settlement. Before he could speak to David, however, the ghost came to speak to him in his tent. This did not go well. Avon barely spoke the language. Her voice was faint and windy, and most of the time her lips moved soundlessly. This annoyed him. He kept trying to get close to her so he could see her face clearly. He could not reach her, though it was a very small tent. It struck him that she was evasive for a ghost. In Iceland, ghosts are robust. Mostly, they just clobber you. He had always been terrified by any mention of ghosts when he was a boy. At the people they beat black and blue, and the goods they stole, and the fertile valleys they sequestered for their own use. What use did they have for such property anyway? That was the thing about ghosts. They were utterly senseless. So he raged inwardly as he chased the ghost of the Khan's wife round and round his small fire. Finally, he gave up and sat down. Eventually, Bort came and sat opposite him. He saw her face pale and sad across the flames, and his heart was filled with desolation. She was not an angry ghost, as he had expected. She talked on and on, looking at him with dark eyes. He heard once the word male child, once he thought the word cut, and many times horse. Horse, brown horse. 
Her hands described an arc in the air, flowing outward, upward, away from her breastbone, and then sliced off abruptly. Cut. Horse. Cut. Avon watched her with an increasing compassion, but remained unsure what to do. To deal with ghosts, you must be a magician or a lawyer, and he was neither. At dawn, she left, climbing up the column of smoke from his fire as if climbing a ladder. Avon thought this was clever, but was relieved to see her disappearing out the smoke hole. Ghosts, he found, are tiring. He slept thereafter for an entire day and a night and had vivid dreams of wind and fire. Wonderful. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> Good. I thought that was the right, the right section. Yes, that was wonderful. Actually, that was one of my favorite passages, too. So pleased to hear you read that. Listeners, All the Horses of Iceland, published by Tor, is now available. Jake and I highly recommend this wonderful novella by Sarah Tolmey. Sarah, you mentioned there'll be an audiobook. Do you have an idea of the time frame when that be published? Yeah, I myself, I have become an enormous fan of audiobooks. I was having vision problems just before COVID and was reduced to, as it were, reading lots of long fiction in the audiobook format. After being initially really resistant, I was very much won over. So now I actually listen to tons of audiobooks. So I was delighted when finally this happened. I'd been angling to try and get one or the other of my books into this format, which I really admire. And I bet you it was simply the New York Times exposure that got it onto the radar of Tantor. But they wrote to me very recently and we've very quickly gone through all the legal and so forth. So they will be in production very soon. They, I think, are probably going to try to get it out as soon as is humanly possible. I think they try to strike when the iron is hot. But at this point, I don't have um, a date. As soon as I do, I will put it up on my website um, so that it can be looked forward to by the constituency of audiobook lovers. But uh, it should be pretty soon. Within a few months. Wonderful. Sarah, thanks again for taking the time to speak with us. All the Horses of Iceland by Sarah Tolmey. Unlike anything we've read so far this year for our podcast, and we again highly recommend it. It's just such a joy to read. And uh, I think after listening to the podcast and listening to Sarah talk about it, we have more context about the novella itself. Just incredible work. Thanks, Sarah. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. 